Well, today is the fifth message in this series of messages on the core doctrines. There are seven messages in total. And as I go through them, you're kind of clicking them off and saying, okay, that one, that one, that one. I wonder if he's going to talk about this. Why am I not telling you all seven of them? Because then you don't have to come and hear them. <laughs> but let's do a quick review of what we've done in the previous weeks, okay? We have done the doctrine of the physical resurrection of Christ, that the tomb is empty. And we've covered the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith, not of works. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the doctrine of the virgin birth, last week. This morning we're going to discuss the inerrancy and the reliability of the Holy Scriptures. And speaking of the Holy Scriptures, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This morning I'll be reading from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to begin with verse 14. Here now is the Word of the Lord. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, for the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Please be seated. This concept of the reliability and the inerrancy is an important doctrine. It's an important doctrine. There we are. Sometimes that slide doesn't quite want to go. It's an important doctrine because it reflects the very character of God. As such, it's foundational to our understanding of everything the Bible teaches. However, within our churches, I think we sometimes lack a common understanding of what this looks like and why this issue matters so much. So let's begin with what I'm going to refer to as a Charles Stanley moment. Do you guys know who Charles Stanley is? You've seen him on television, you listen to him on the radio. Longtime pastor in Atlanta, Georgia. Charles Stanley, remember him? And he has these moments in his messages where he always says, now listen, listen. Remember he says that? Well, this is the Charles Stanley moment in this message. And here it is. If the Bible is not reliable in everything that it says, the effect of that would mean that all the key doctrines that we believe, such as who Jesus is, what God is like, how we have hope for our place in eternity, those key doctrines would therefore be unreliable because they would come from an unreliable source. Now that statement gives you an idea of how important of a teaching this is. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you to consider, I'll give you a hypothetical situation, all right? If a major newspaper were to regularly publish stories that were inaccurate and they refused to correct those errors, I'm talking about in their facts, not necessarily in their opinions, okay? Inaccurate in their facts, that newspaper would lose credibility fairly quickly. At least you would think that they would. Unless they were publishing in a large city on the East Coast, but I digress. <laughs> but to make it even worse, it would not help if the newspaper responded by saying, 
we've checked it out and we're only inaccurate in 5% of the things that we write. The readers of that newspaper would say a 5% error rate would begin to make them question the rest of the writing. I'm sure you can, see the, uh, you can see the concern. So let's consider this impact of claiming that the Bible has inaccurate renderings of the events that it describes. If we say that the Bible is inaccurate when it speaks of history, we're eventually going to begin to wonder whether it is accurate in terms of its theology. And this is one reason why this doctrine of inerrancy and reliability is so foundational to the other core doctrines. But next, I want us to consider that the Bible is a reflection of its author. Now, this is true for all books that are written, of course. But the Bible is unique in that, while it was written down by human authors, its contents, indeed its very words, were given by a process that we refer to as divine inspiration. 1 Timothy 3.16, that we read a few moments ago, says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Literally, it is God-breathed. 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but by holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The classic translation is worded that way. If the Bible contains errors in its historical facts, then we're going to have to deal with one of two statements. And that is the following. Either it is not divinely inspired, which means that it is only the thoughts of men about God, or it means that God is not all-knowing and that God makes mistakes. You know, that's not a good situation if we faced either one of those two. If the Bible is unreliable, then God's not who we think he is because his revealed word is unreliable, and therefore God is unreliable. The whole issue of the reliability of Scripture is that foundational. And that's why a reliable, accurate Bible is so important. So when we speak of this, we're speaking of the principle of the original manuscripts. They are without error. Without that belief, we couldn't have an accurate Bible today. The original manuscripts were exactly as the Holy Spirit intended them to be in every detail. Now you say, Jim, we don't have any of those original manuscripts. You're correct. We have copies of copies of copies of copies. They didn't have Xerox machines back then, right? The printing press wouldn't even be invented until the 1450s or so. People who question the reliability of Scripture today may even believe the originals were perfect without error, but their doubt is whether that accuracy has been transmitted. They question human copying errors. And actually, that's really at the heart of this issue when it comes to just how reliable our Bibles are today. And I'll talk about that a little more in a few minutes. But as Christians, we believe the original manuscripts were given under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit and that they were without error. That is the doctrine of inspiration. Separate from, but connected to, that concept is the doctrine of preservation. You have the doctrine of inspiration with the originals, the doctrine of preservation with what we have today. That God not only inspired his word, but he has also preserved his word through the years. Now we have to remember something else, and that is that the Bible is not a buffet in which we're free to select 
different verses. I mean, people like the verses that say God loves them. They're not so sure they like the verses that say he's going to judge sinners. But I think we know we can't pick and choose what we like and throw away the rest. God has said what he's said, and the Bible presents us a full picture of who he is. But let me give you another example of this issue of what happens when we begin to question whether Scripture is reliable. If the Bible's teaching about, let's say, the reality of hell, if that is wrong, how can we know that it's correct in what it says about heaven? If it gets the specifics of creation wrong, how do we know its specifics about salvation are correct? If the story of Jonah and the belly of the great fish is just a parable, just a metaphor, then how do we know that the story of Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and future coming is true and real? It's a domino effect. If we have that lower view of Scripture that it's unreliable, it is the ultimate slippery slope. We can't wander very far down that path. And that's why we have to take this issue seriously. But when we do that, there's something else we need to do. We need to have some common sense and decency. Over the years, I have run across people who have an approach to this that I just I do not support. We have to trust that God's preserved his word, of course. But we also have to trust him more than we trust our emotions and our personal opinions. Because remember, this is not about us. This is about God. Far too many people who profess to be Christian believers have this really bad habit of treating fellow Christians very poorly when they don't have exactly the same understanding on this issue. In my view, this is not pleasing to God at all, but Satan is having an absolute party when Christians do that to one another. And we ought to know better than that. Now let's look at another passage. Look at another passage. This is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 64 to 69. Jesus and Peter have just witnessed the departure of some who had claimed to believe. And so I'm going to read from one of the classic translations where it says, but there are some of you that believe not, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, I'm quoting Jesus, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. And from that time, many of his Followers, some of the translations say disciples, although it really isn't referring to the 12 disciples. Some of them went back and walked with him no more. And so Jesus said unto the 12, are you going to go away also? Simon Peter answers him, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou alone hast the words of eternal life. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. So for this and so many other reasons, I accept that God not only divinely inspired his word in the original manuscripts, but I accept by faith he has preserved his word through the passage of time and translation and the differences in culture. Now, in translating those original manuscripts to modern languages, God worked through people who were well-trained in what I'm going to call legitimate biblical scholarship. Just as he used human authors to write down the originals, he has used human scholars to preserve and properly translate his words so what we have today is reliable. This is why this belief in the reliability, the inerrancy of Scripture doesn't mean that we stop using our minds. God did give us minds. I have heard pastors who reject all scholarship. 
they call it just selling out. That is not fair. They are bearing false witness against fellow believers, and I profoundly disagree with them. But we do, we do acknowledge something else, too. There are passages in the Bible that are difficult. There are honest differences over what they mean. Our goal should be to approach the Bible reverently, prayerfully, and when we find something we don't understand, we should humbly acknowledge our own limitations. We need to trust God for a future understanding. And by the way, that future understanding may not come until we're in his presence. When we're not sure of how to understand something, it's okay to ask questions. And when we disagree with fellow believers, you know what? It's okay to disagree. We just shouldn't be so disagreeable. In my personal opinion, this is a weakness in way too many churches. Now remember when I talked about the creeds the last few weeks. There was a modern creed of sorts in 1978. It was put together in Chicago at a Bible conference. The participants published what they call the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it begins with this quote. It says, the authority of scripture is essential for the Christian church in this and every age. And it goes on to talk about subjects like the original manuscripts themselves, the divine inspiration of the human authors. It talks about the challenges with translations. It talks about the power of the Holy Spirit in inspiring those scriptures. And it talks about the essential belief that the Bible is our final authority. In many ways, this was a modern creed that affirms this very important doctrine. Now, there's an important biblical principle the study of hermeneutics, by the way, is the science and the art of interpreting the Bible. And one key principle is the following. Scripture interprets Scripture, meaning that we understand the Bible in the whole of the rest of the Bible. But another key principle is that we have to keep it in context. We have to understand what it meant to the people it was written at the time that it was written. Those who signed the Chicago Statement, they understood all these key principles. And they issued a pretty clear statement of caution. I would even go so far as to call it a warning. That there are some significant consequences to abandoning a belief that the Bible is something that we can count on as being accurate and reliable. So when we are involved with this whole matter of inerrancy and reliability, we're dealing with actually three issues. Inspiration of the originals, preservation through the time of copying over the years, and then translation. Inspiration is the original manuscripts where God breathed, that he personally oversaw the writing process. Preservation is that God went to great lengths to protect his word over the passage of time. I think we see that throughout history. And you might be interested to know that when it comes to the copying issue, the Old Testament Hebrew manuscripts were painstakingly copied by Jewish scribes. They had a deep reverence for the manuscripts they're copying. They worked under very strict rules. It even said exactly which kind of parchment they could use to write on. The size of the columns were set. Even the kind of ink, the spacing of the words had to be exact. They couldn't write anything from memory. They had to look at it and see it. Even the individual letters were very methodically counted in every individual line to ensure the accuracy of their copy work. In 1947, in an area of Israel near the Dead Sea called 
They found the Dead Sea Scrolls. You're probably familiar with those. They confirmed the precision of these Old Testament copies that were made by the early scribes. It's amazing accuracy over the years. Now, the New Testament, in its original manuscripts, they were in Greek, and they were also divinely inspired, but they're a little more of a complex issue. In fact, almost all of the debate about whether today's Bibles are accurate is regarding the New Testament manuscripts. They come from different regions, and so they're different ages. The ones that are more recent, we don't have as many of those. Excuse me, we have many more of those. I got that one backwards. But those that are older, we don't have as many of those. And so scholars debate about which one is more reliable because they do have some differences. But I must say this, when you look at the variations within them, none of them by themselves affect a core doctrine. There are individual verses in which there is the appearance of something has been modified. But when you looked at in the whole of scripture, in the totality of scripture, the concern is overblown. I'll give you an example. The well-known passage that says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? If we have 2,000 manuscripts that say that, but we also have 100 that leave out the word for, it just says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Does that mean that we have doubt about that it said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? Some of the question of copying errors is overblown. And we have to understand something else, too. Translation from one language to another is always an interpretive process. Remember, you have an original language and you have a destination language. And sometimes you have an intermediary language. The earlier English translations went through Latin because they didn't have access to com complete Greek and Hebrew manuscripts at the time. And so as a result, in some cases, you had a translation of a translation. But if they were faithful translations, they capture everything that the scripture said. Now let's talk a little bit about method, though. Method of translation. Should translations be word for word in their approach, even if that means that it's very wooden and the meaning sometimes isn't as clear? Or should they take a thought-for-thought -thought approach, even if some of the details aren't completely there? See, the translation process isn't as simple as sometimes it's made out to be. What I've found is this is more difficult for people to understand if they never had to learn a second language. Now, with all of that having been said, let's come up to one of the questions that often gets asked, and that's the following. Can a Bible translation itself be truly inspired and inerrant? Now, here's my thought on that. Some translations are better than others. Some are very accurate, but they're just difficult to read. Others are easy to read, but for the sake of easier understanding, they may lack a few details or flavor. They don't necessarily impact a core doctrine, but they're not quite as full in terms of the sense of the meaning. Some come from different lines of original manuscripts with minor little differences in their wording. Personally, for this question here, I don't see one translation as the only answer. I suggest that people use two to three different translations. I actually use four different sources. Typically, I will use a 
very literal word-for-word translation, like the New American Standard Bible. I will use a historical one, like the King James Version, mostly because of my love for its poetic and lyrical beauty. But I'll acknowledge that sometimes it's not easy to understand. And so I'll look for a thought-for-thought translation, like the New Living Translation. And then with all the tools and materials that I have, I will also look at the original language to try to help me get a little thicker understanding. But when we're dealing with translations into English, Holy Scripture is probably not limited to just one translation. I think we come down to a debate between the Word of God and the words of God. But of all these other items, there's one other that it deserves at least a passing mention, and that is the sufficiency of Scripture. It's related to those other documents. Since Scripture's God-breathed, since 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that, it's not just the work of men, because no man-made writing is sufficient to equip us for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.17. Only the Word of God to do that, and that's another reason why Scripture must be our, our final authority. No other writings, not the creeds, not different doctrinal statements, not some of the classic confessions of the faith, like the Westminster Confession, not the writings of a famous theologian or famous pastor can ever be viewed as equal to or adding to the Word of God. But finally, we should believe in this doctrine simply because Scripture itself says so. I'll give you an example. Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Isaiah 40, chapter 8, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Matthew 4, 4, Well-known passage, but most of the time we only hear the first part of it. Man shall not live by bread alone, and then here's the rest of it, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, these and other passages refer to perfection of the Holy Scripture. And yet, when you look at the Greek word that was often used to describe the Scriptures as perfect, the meaning of it refers more to completeness For our purposes this morning, the perfection of the Holy Scriptures, the inerrancy of it, means that everything it says is true, and therefore we can count on what it says. We do not need to second-guess the Bible's accuracy. And yes, this requires a certain amount of faith, that God has inspired his word and he's preserved his word, and that preserved word is accurate and reliable and authoritative for our lives today. So let's wrap this up. This is the doctrine of the inerrancy and the reliability of the Holy Scriptures. The Scriptures that speak of the Holy Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three distinct personages while always being one God. The Scriptures that speak of the Son who came to be the perfect sinless sacrifice as a fully atoning payment for the sins of mankind, past, present, and future. The Scriptures that speak of the Messiah who was foretold in the Old Testament to come and to be born of a virgin. The scriptures that speak of the Savior who was crucified, died, was buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, and is coming again, perhaps very soon. These are the scriptures that tell us 
that this risen Savior is the only way to salvation. And he is ready to save anybody who will confess and repent and place their faith in him. And these same scriptures speak of the Holy Spirit who calls us to repentance, enables us to surrender to his calling, enables us to receive the gift of eternal life by grace, through faith. These are the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Together they serve us and they guide us. You might say they are our martyr buoys to keep us from running aground. They are our reminders that we can trust what God has said because his word is reliable and true. To God be the glory and all of God's people said. Amen.